stay close to your customers, work with your customers, and do your, do do what you believe is uh, uh, is right with great passion and um, hopefully high energy. You know, I think that it's very very important to uh, you got to keep remembering that you got to you know. Um, you can't empty the well all the time. You've got to keep topping up the well. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to one of the true legends of Australian hospitality, uh, chef and restaurateur Jeff Lindsay. Uh, really drove for, forward modern Australian dining with his restaurant Stella and Pearl and then did super interesting things at Dandelion in Melbourne, which only closed recently. Jeff is now at Lamaro's Hotel uh, and um, it's a real thrill to have you on the show, Jeff. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Nice to speak to you again, Danny. Yeah, really good to chat to you. Um, I feel like, you know, in my career as a food writer, you've been, you know, someone that's always been there doing interesting things. Um, I've always wanted to know what you're up to and what you're doing next. Um, but I suppose, yeah, where do you think things are at now? Like, how do you, how do you feel about hospitality at the moment? Um, well, I guess I'm always very, very positive about it. I think we're in a really good place. I think there's some fantastic um, new concepts and ideas coming through, some amazing new investment coming into the industry that wasn't there when I first started, that's for sure. I mean, the biggest players in hospitality in Australia now didn't come from hospitality as a first um, uh, a first career. They came as lovers of the industry and invested money into it. Chris Lucas is an example, and, um, uh, and the Hems family in Sydney are probably great examples of that. They've invested huge amounts of money into uh, an industry without it being necessarily their first loves. Um, obviously, we've got to take COVID out of it because COVID is just such a um, is just such a slap in the uh, uh, in the back of the head for everybody. Uh, but I still feel very, very confident about it. And in specifically with Melbourne, I think Melbourne's always been in a position where where it's been considered all around the world as being the uh, culinary capital of Australia. And I don't think that's really changed. I think that the um, um, I think that Sydney remains as being the the business hub, uh, and therefore the restaurants tend to be more high fro- high profile, busier, and uh, perhaps more profitable than the Melbourne ones do. But I do still believe that Melbourne is very much the um, the epicenter of culinary uh, uh, appreciation um, in in Australia. So I still feel very confident. I think we'll bounce back pretty well. Pretty well. The correction with. Uh, the correction with re- in real estate with rental is going to help businesses. That may take a year or two to filter through, but that'll help us. Um, and then the influx, hopefully, uh, of the new students and um, uh, international workers uh, that comes in will see a whole lot of really, really exciting new ideas and new things uh, happening for us. Cooks coming from all over the world that'll be here. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident, pretty excited about it. Wow. I mean, I can hear the energy in your voice. I, I'm so thrilled to hear you so positive and upbeat and, yeah, and forward-looking. It's it's really great. Um, but now I'm going to make you go back in time and take, take us to the start of your journey in hospitality. Um, wh- what took the young Jeff Lindsay into, into restaurants? I started... Um, I was born in Warrnambool um, and started my apprenticeship uh, working in Warrnambool when I left school. Um, I had been through that through the time that I was um, uh, in high school in Warrnambool. My father ran a pharmacy down in uh, the main street of Warrnambool, and he used to work every Friday night. He used to work late nights down there till nine o'clock. So my mother and my two brothers would always go down and meet him at a restaurant that was in. Um, not really a restaurant, sort of family restaurant. Not a McDonald's, though. We didn't have McDonald's down there until much later. Um, but we used to go there every Friday night and have dinner with him there. He'd come and see us at 6 o'clock, um, and then he'd go back to the go back and do the last couple of hours at, um, uh, at the pharmacy until 9 o'clock that night. So we got a chance to see him then. Because by the time the weekend came, all of the boys, my, I had older brother and a younger brother. I was the middle boy. We were all playing all sorts of sport and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, my dad worked six days a week the whole time. So we didn't get to see each other that much on the weekend. So Friday night was always really good for us. So we go down to this particular restaurant, sit there. And I guess that was at the time when I first started to um, um, appreciate um, uh, food a little bit more. We'd always, my mother had always been a great cook, but we, we'd appreciated food in a, refer, in a restaurant environment where you could order what you wanted and then it came to the table and, uh, and then it was cleared for you. And um, uh, so it was kind of, uh, it was very special for us. 
So at that particular time, I really started to fall in love with the dynamic of restaurants, not really cooking. It took me a long time to fall in love. This is honest truth. It took me a long time to fall in love with cooking. It wasn't until 10 or 12 years after I started cooking that I really fell in love with cooking itself. What I love was restaurants and the dynamic of restaurants. I love people coming in, coming in with, you know, dropping their troubles of the day, you know, off at the front door, coming in, having a glass of wine or a glass of champagne or something like that. And, and, um, uh, all of a sudden, you could tell them transforming into this new zone of happiness. And then by the time they left, all their worries are gone and out the door that they went, um, uh, leaving very, very happy. So at that particular time, I was probably, you know, 15, 16, up until the time that I was 17. Um, I kind of really loved the atmosphere of the restaurant. I really started to look forward to it. And then, of course, by the time I got to 17, I was looking at things in a, in a sort of different way, and I felt that this could be the way I wanted to spend my life. And the guy who owned the restaurant down there in Warrnambool, he was um, – uh, he drove a really fancy convertible car. Every day he came in on Friday afternoon, um, he'd always have his golf clubs over his shoulder or he'd have his tennis racket or he'd have his uh, you know, a surfboard over his shoulder or in the back of the car. So I got to know him. He was re- relatively young too, but he was living this very idyllic lifestyle. And I thought, oh, well, this is for me. You know, you come in, you're, you're uh, on the golf course all day, you're at the tennis club all day, and then, and then you come in and uh, start work at 6 o'clock at night and that's your life. It clearly wasn't in the end. How deluded I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, it, but that was what it was. And I thought, gee, that's a really nice lifestyle. And my family had all come from um, my brother at that p- particular time, just come down to Monash University, was studying medicine. My mum worked um, – uh, at the Warrnambool Base Hospital, she was in infection control. So this was during the time coming into during the time of AIDS, you know. So infection control was very, very important. Not unlike what it is today, really. Um, and uh, my dad was a chemist. So in a lot of ways, they were all dealing with people who were who were sick, trying to make them better. And I was dealing with people who, well, we were selling good times you know, in, in the restaurant environment in, in those days anyway. It became a little bit more serious after that. But in those days, basically, it was just drop your troubles at the door, grab a beer, grab a wine, and, and off you went. So we were selling good times, and I thought that was a really nice thing to be doing rather than dealing with sick people all the time like the rest of my family were doing. I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with these guys having fun. So you stepped into a role at this restaurant? I did. That's exactly what happened. So we it got to a point where I no longer wanted to um, sort of sit and wait for Dad on a, on a Friday night and, and fight with my brothers and, um, you know, my, my poor mum trying to um, placate the, the boys. So I, I went and started working in the kitchen, like every restaurant in the world, everybody's short-staffed. So they grabbed me as a warm body and I started to work. So I was working there then every Friday night when my dad came in, uh, which, which I really loved. And then that led to when I finished school, I went and started an apprenticeship there. And that, that must have been in about um, 81 or 82, I think. Yeah, in about 81, uh, might have been the end of 81. Either 81 or 81 or 82, I can't really remember. Both Carlton Premiership years, so, yeah, great years. Oh, well, they were golden years then, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so then I started my apprenticeship there and I worked in, in Warnable uh, for the fullness of my apprenticeship. Um, uh, I worked for a beautiful woman down there who still remains a great friend. She's in well in her 80s now. She was, uh, I was apprenticed to her. Um, uh, in fact, I, I, was, I was apprenticed to her. Then her daughter was apprenticed to me sometime later at Stella. So there's a, there a real closeness and a real synchronicity with, us, with the two families uh, there. What's her name? That's so beautiful. Wendy, um, uh, Wendy Robb and Vanessa Robb is her daughter. I love it. Yeah, so um, um, there was something really special for me about working with um, with um, uh, with Wendy down there as a female chef. Knowing what I know now, I realised that I got a very, very nurtured and a very, very comforting. Um, um, uh, my lessons were taught in a very nurturing and very comforting, comforting way. When I arrived in Melbourne, I realised it was much more brutal than what I had experienced, um, and what and sometimes much more frightening. Uh, so I, I was always very thankful of those years where it was where where we as an apprentice, it was really really gentle and really really easy going. That was also part of being in the country, I think, as well. 
Um, and, and then we weren't necessarily cooking the world's greatest food down there, but we were using the world's greatest produce. I've got to tell you, I can I can still remember to this day the lobsters we used to get in, the abalone we used to get in, the beautiful lamb that used to come down, the local cheeses that were made down there at Timboon. Um, there was just so much really beautiful stuff. So I was always handling really, really good produce, doing it in and uh, presenting it in a really, really simple way. Um, and then the, the Robs, the, Wendy and her husband Ian, they used to always be coming down to Melbourne. They'd come down every two weeks and then they'd fill their boot full of um, interesting things. You know, they'd go to the Vic Market, they'd go to um, uh, a number of different wholesalers. They'd bring whole wheels of Parmesan down in the back of the car. So it was really something very, um, very special at that, that particular time. It sounds like a great education. And then did they sort of light the spark of heading to Melbourne to see what was next? Yeah, they did. They always, they always told me that that's what I had. I mean, I always knew that that's really what I wanted because obviously my, my goal always remained that I wanted to own my own restaurant, you know, and, and, and have the convertible and the golf clubs and the tennis racket and the surfboard and the, and the very pretty girlfriend. Uh, which well, I had pretty girlfriends, but I, but I didn't have a lot of um, time to play sport, I've got to say. So then I moved, when I qualified, I moved down to Melbourne and I worked at a place called uh, uh, the Willows in St Kilda Road, which at the time was a, which is, um, a very, very successful restaurant run by, a woman, run by a woman as well. So I went to work there and I met my first wife there, which was, which was fantastic, unbelievable. And I also worked with another young chef there who, who has become one of my – somebody that I worked with and he actually facilitated – 15 years later, nearly 20 years later, he facilitated uh, me going to, to uh, work in Hong Kong and set up a restaurant in, in Hong Kong as well, and we did that in partnership over there. So I met some really good people there at that time. Um, uh, then my wife at the time went to work at um, – sorry, no, my girlfriend at the time who became my wife, my first wife, my first ex-wife, she, she went to work at Stephanie's in Hawthorne. And I was always in awe of what they were doing there, in absolute awe. At that time, Stephanie's was the best restaurant in Australia, along with um, Gay Bilson running um, uh, the Barrara Waters Inn. Interesting, again, two females vying for the best restaurant in Australia, um, you know, Stephanie and Gay. Uh, they were One would win it one year, one would win it the next year, one would win it. So over the course of a five-year period of time, they were the two best restaurants, both run by women. Uh, so I was. So I went to work. So she went to work with Stephanie Alexander, and I was a little bit jealous of that. So um, I, I then went to work at a restaurant called Petty Shoe in High Street in Armadale, which was a three chefs hat BYO restaurant. Now I learned so many wonderful things in that in that restaurant. Um, uh, certainly about um, the presentation of food and about. Being able to style things in a different, um, uh, in a different, um, very specific manner to the customer base, uh, instead of the customer base coming to experience something like they would, the Willows was a very French orientated restaurant, so the, so people went to it and expected French food and went and got French food. Uh, so you had to mould it like it would be for French food. When I went to work at this place called Petit Chou, it was very um, artistic and incredible looking food, incredible looking food. And then it was a BYO restaurant. Now, BYO restaurants, we don't really know that much about, but in those days, they were the creative hubs. They were the place where the younger chefs were, were um, opening businesses because they couldn't afford to open a restaurant that was a, um, a fully licensed premises at that point in time. And then people would bring – and Melbourne people loved them. They absolutely loved them. There was Petit Shoe and there was another place called Tansy's in um, in uh, in Nicholson Street. Um, uh, the, the both both fabulous, fabulous restaurants, uh, and they were the most creative places, believe it or not. Um, uh, they were they were generally those fixed price sort of menus, the beginning of that degustation sort of thing. But the fact that customers could bring their own wine meant they brought really good wine, um, and they were. Real celebration sort of places, bigger tables than a la carte restaurants, um, and great fun and um, and real experimental sort of uh, places for for chefs. Yeah, Jeff, it's really interesting thinking about those BYO restaurants, which is such a big part of Melbourne dining culture through those decades, seventies, eighties, into the nineties. And I mean, how could restaurateurs make money in those restaurants? 
Well, back in the days, you didn't have to pay for that infrastructure. You could go to a little shop anywhere, virtually paint the place white yourself, put your tables and chairs in there, put a very small kitchen in there, and off you went. And it wasn't really – because it did, it did cost a little bit in those days to, to apply for your um, uh, to apply for your liquor licence and, and, and to follow through. Yeah, to follow through with them, it wasn't. It wasn't until that um, uh, that big. Um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name who did that big audit of the liquor licensing in Victoria that sort of changed everything. Newenhausen. It wasn't until the Newenhausen report came out that um, they sort of started to change everything and made it much easier for people to get liquor licenses and made, made it much people easier for people to drink and order a wine by the glass and all that sort of thing. Before that, you couldn't. You just couldn't do it. Um, uh, you know, you had to buy a big. Uh, you know, had to have a lot of infrastructure, financial infrastructure. Um, I guess I'm, I'm alluding to more so than more so than business infrastructure. It's interesting, like, it, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's like the the liberalisation of the liquor laws made it easier for people to get a license, but then at the same time, just going back to what you said at the start of this conversation, you've got this sort of, I guess, big money investment coming in. It's sort of like everything started to scale up in terms of what you needed to open a restaurant. For the better. I mean, that meant now you could just, in those days, before that, you couldn't just go and get a glass of wine and sit on a street corner like we take for granted now. You couldn't get a glass of wine in a bookshop like you can now, which we take for granted. You couldn't get a glass of wine at the movies. You couldn't get a glass of wine at the theatre. You couldn't get a glass of wine anywhere, you know, except in a licensed restaurant. So that, 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 real big change was very 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 positive for the industry it meant that it made it harder for the little little um independent um um uh, byo restaurant to survive but i think that that was that was a small price to pay because I, I think you could do a byo restaurant again nowadays uh but you know a lot of that a lot of that sort of changed too with the with the point oh five um uh, introduction point. People don't realise that back in those days, you just drank and drove. Everybody did. Half of us died on the weekend, but um, I mean, really, that was the case. There was no such thing as drink driving. Um, uh, you know, it was just a really weird time. You know, for where I sit, it wasn't really that long ago. But it's it's um, may seem like the dark ages to a lot of people, but it uh, really kind of wasn't really that long ago. You know. I remember going to Stephanie's restaurant. I was a kid and I still can remember having a beautifully dressed green salad for the first time and just feeling like it was it was like a revelation. Yeah, I did that. I dressed that salad. It was really good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I started working at Steph. So what happened was with my with my first ex-wife, she she was beautiful girl. She's a great cook, unbelievable cook. Um, she went and worked there at Stephanie's and then she decided she didn't want to do it anymore because it was really intense, really aggressive, and she hadn't sort of seen anything like that before. Um, and she just wanted to move to uh, – she just wanted to be a pure cook and not, you know, go through the robust nature of it. You had to work really, really hard there. So I said that I'd take her job. So I just walked in, introduced myself to Stephanie and said, I'm going to take her job. She's leaving at the end of the week and I'm starting. And that was pretty much it. I wrote her a really nice letter and said, is this, is this all right? Can we do this? But pretty much that's what I was angling for and it kind of worked out. So um, uh, and then I loved it. I absolutely adored it. I was there for six years in the end. left. I started working in the pastry department when I first got there and then I ended as the head chef there. I worked with Stephanie as the head chef there for three or four years. I absolutely loved it there. I learned so much about food and about life and about running businesses, what to do and what not to do also. You know, the few things that I learned there that, that, that have become part of my mantra of what not to do. Um, and uh, but I just adored it. She was Stephanie was just such a wonderful woman, uh, just such a knowledgeable person about food. And as I said at that time, you know she was lauded all over the world. You know I was very fortunate with her to to be able to travel to, as guest chef. We worked in London, we worked in New York, we worked in San Francisco, we worked in Los Angeles, uh, uh, worked in New Zealand. Uh, with her, just you know, cooking promotional sort of guest chef sort of things. You know special dinners. Yeah, yeah. What a ride. But, Jeff, a lot of people know of Stephanie's and it does have that legendary place in our, um, yeah, restaurant canon. But just describe it. Like, just set the scene for people who weren't lucky enough to go there. 
it's a massive big mansion in Hawthorne. Um, beautiful Italianate mansion. Uh, when I first started there, the Stephanie and um, her husband and kids lived upstairs, and there was a big restaurant downstairs. Beautiful dining rooms, the most beautiful dining rooms in 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 Melbourne. A bit like what you'd said, Florentino, but kind of much, in a lot of ways, much more much more gobsmacking, really. Uh, and then the, at the heart of the restaurant was this massive kitchen, massive. Right in the middle of the right in the middle of the of the building, uh, it had big floor to ceiling, almost floor to ceiling windows all the way around it that you could open up, and had a massive big um, uh, kitchen garden outside. So we were doing we were doing sort of kitchen garden style, you know, grow your own herbs, grow your own vegetables, way before it became fashionable. We were doing, you know, we knew what sustainability was way before it became a, uh, a trend like it is uh, nowadays. You know, we were re- recycling everything, composting everything. Uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty incredible sort of, uh, uh, pretty incredible sort of atmosphere. And the whole team worked all the time together. So I don't know whether there might have been, I think when I was doing the rosters, there were more than 20, 20 of us on the roster. So you might have 16 people in the kitchen at any one time. Like, I don't think anybody's doing that nowadays. Um, oh, they might be. I guess they might be. There might be a few places are doing that. But, but certainly at that time, that was really, really big. And everything was done. She hand-wrote all the menus. Everything was done seasonally. So there was a whole – everything went – and four week and four times a year, everything went off the menu, and the rest of it came. And Stephanie was travelling all the time, and she was going around Australia all the time, championing produce and everything. It really was a very, very. And for me, there three or four years just went in the blink of an eye, you know, because everything was so, or the year was so ordered, you know, we were going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and you know, you knew like it was mapped out on a, the whole year was mapped out on a wall in the kitchen, you know. Uh, and then everybody had all the staff um, had little chores. You know, you had your you did your section, whether you're the pastry section or the or the the, the you know the saucier or the whatever it was you what, what section you was. But everybody had little uh, chores to do as well. So it's kind of run run in some way in a really human way. Um, so that oh, I take the bins out, water the garden. Um, you know, all of just little things like you would probably have for your kids at home, you know. Um, put the washing on, like you, somebody had their chore was to wash the tea towels, dry the tea towels, fold the tea towels. Uh, you know, so it was, just, it was just the way that it was run. And I guess in those days, the, um, uh, that's just sort of, the, you know, the way you did it, I guess. Well, I don't know if it was, but uh, that's the way we did it and it worked really well for us. Because I know all the kids that work there that I know ever since. Like I work with Annie Smithers in those days. She's still around now. You know, I'm sure she runs her kitchen exactly the same as that, you know. That's the way I run my kitchens too. And I'm pleased that that was what it was like. There was also there was also a slight growing of real aggression within that kitchen there, again, that I'd never seen before, that kind of took me by surprise a little bit. And um, some of it, unfortunately, rubbed off on me, and it took me a little bit of a while to get that spot out of my, you know, out out damn spot. I know it took me maybe took me ten or twelve years, maybe even fifteen years to get that out. But um, back in those days, things were things could be pretty aggressive in the kitchen environment. Right. I mean, it's. Um, I know Stephanie's can be a formidable presence, um, but I can't imagine that it, she was. Yeah, she was screaming in the kitchen. I just cannot see that. Yeah, no, she wasn't involved in any of that. No, that's not what I mean at all. She she employed head chefs in the kitchen that um, were under a hell of a lot of pressure, obviously, because I did that role myself. So I know how much pressure that it was under. But sometimes they were um, European chefs. Um, and I'm not suggesting that they came from that, but um, sometimes monkey see, monkey do. Um, and uh, but there was there was one particular guy there who was who was pretty frightening for everybody. Wow, it's interesting, you know, when you describe this really quite family style. Um, like ethic that's sort of underpinning the way that restaurant ran. But even so, you can have, a, you know, some poisonous culture that, that comes into that. Yeah, I don't know whether necessarily poisonous is the right word, but but um, certainly aggressive um, and certainly perhaps needed to be a father figure. I mean, I know, I know that that's the wrong thing to say as well because you shouldn't equate 
being a father with being aggressive or, or aggressiveness with being a father. But maybe the, maybe the, there was that dynamic because the, the, the restaurant was run by two women, Duray Dara, there, who had a very strong influence on the, on the place and ran the front of house there. You know, she was the head of the Restaurant and Caterers Association or involved in the Restaurant and Caterers Association for a long, a long time. Uh, she was there too, but um, no, I just think it's. Uh, I, don't, I don't look. I don't know what it is. What what what, what that dynamic? How that dynamic originated? Uh, because I wasn't there when that guy first got there. Uh, he left, and I took over his job. Uh, and he certainly wasn't aggressive to me um, um, in the end, but he was a little bit to begin with. Mm. Okay, so uh, step us forward. What happened next in your career? I left um, uh, uh, Stephanie's uh, around about 94 and then I went to work with a guy, with, with one of my best friends at the time, a guy called Andrew Blake. Andrew had a restaurant down at Blake's, sorry, down at South Bank uh, called Blake's and I went and worked there for a while in view of us looking for a restaurant. Um, about six months later, we found, or maybe even more than that, maybe about 12 months later, we found a restaurant in Spring Street in the city next to the Princess Theatre, which is which is now called the City Wine Store, a uh, two, two-level uh, restaurant. And we took that over in 95, one best new restaurant when that, um, uh, when that opened, opened with three chef's hats there and best new restaurant. So it was a pretty, pretty bold sort of start, really, um, for my first restaurant. I was 29 at the time. Um, I had uh, a two-year-old uh, daughter, my beautiful daughter, who I think you might have met, Danny, called Isabella. Uh, yep, yep. So, um, uh, so I had a lot on my plate anyway. Um, uh, and then we took that place over, and we did, we did a lot of great stuff there. At that time, again, there was still really a strong emphasis on European style food, and this modern Australian thing hadn't really kicked that much. I feel like those restaurants, like if I think about, you know, this whole idea of modern Australian, like Blake's was an originator, Stella um, was certainly an originator and then carrying it forward into Pearl where I guess it really stepped forward again. But Stella was fantastic because it gave us a lot of, lot of, um, uh, a lot of ways to experiment with, um, with um, sort of different concepts there. We had, um, we had an entire wine list all available by the glass. Uh, we had on the on the on the rest, on the menu every single dish was paired with a um, uh, with a wine that was a, a matched wine that was available by the glass. So we were really trying to do some very innovative things. We had in my our, our other partner there was a guy called Grant Van Every, who won a won a uh, gold medal at the Sommeliers Olympics. Believe it or not, there is a thing called the Sommeliers Olympics. Won a gold medal at Somalia's Olympics um, for matching food and wine together. So he had an incredible knowledge. So, so his involvement within the business was um, was was um, really powerful, really powerful. And as the three of us had travelled a little bit to at that stage to the United States to see what was sort of happening there, particularly with Californian cuisine and um, uh, and the and the wine movement in the states, and those were some of the elements that we sort of gleaned from there. We felt that um, that we would leave the uh, Italian restaurants to the Italians and the French restaurants to the French, and we would do Australian food because that's who we were and that's what we that's what we knew, even though we didn't really know what Australian food was. What do you think was a what was a key dish at Stella? Um, I think we started to do a lot of variation, a lot of, for me, a lot of seafood, light seafood sort of things um, with um, uh, like things like we used to do this, um, we used to do this beautiful tuna ceviche, uh, but it wasn't a ceviche. We were doing it more in a Thai with Thai flavours on it as well. So that, the combination of those sort of things, the, the premium produce for me was the key with Australian cuisine. You had to start off with premium produce and then the layering of the Asian herbs and flavours on it and presenting it in a, um, in a very, very stylized, um, even more European way, I guess, than, a, than a, a Asian food tends to be in a bowl, you know, like, like that. So a much more stylized sort of a, sort of a manner. So we do what we a beautiful um, uh, roast peking duck there, uh, which is probably the most famous dish that we had. I've unfortunately fell into the trap of um, doing um, duck dishes that remain on the menus for a very, very long period of time. 
Well, that was certainly the case at Pearl where that red duck curry was um, just bolted to the menu. Yeah, the red duck curry, which is still um, at, uh, at Lamaro's. So we were there. We were there. We sold the restaurant there in about um, in about uh, twenty in about two thousand, uh, and it was bought by um, don't know who the name of the guy was, but uh, Ian Curley was the chef, and he moved in as the chef there, and he stayed in that zone for a long, long time. Uh, after that, he became partners with Con Christopolis and and all that sort of stuff. But um, uh, so we were, we were felt we felt we were handing the restaurant over into good hands, which we were, uh, and they're still there to, to this day. So amazing! And then, so Pearl was the next step. Pearl was the next step. So in two thousand, we took over um, an existing restaurant there. We opened in. Um, I think we might have taken it over in two thousand and and opened in two thousand at the very beginnings of two thousand and one. There, one best new restaurant for that as well. Of one best new restaurant three times. Um, yeah, uh, and we opened up there. Now, that was really exciting. That was the first time I've been involved in a purpose-built restaurant built all around my, my own style and the style of my, my business partner, a guy called Andrew Gunn there. Andrew was one of our best customers at, um, at Stella and was had done his apprenticeship as a chef as a younger man and then gone into the family business, which was a printing business, but had always had this passion for food. Uh, was a very good cook, obviously, um, uh, but never wanted to do it as a professional anymore. You know, he was he was on a good wicket with the um, with the with the printing business. He did a great job with that with that business too. Um, so um, we we agreed to pair together whenever whenever an opportunity came up, and we felt that that Richmond site was was perfect for us. There was no other restaurants in the street at the time. There's a million now, but there's no other restaurants in the street at the time. But it was the home for the fashion and design precinct of Melbourne. Um, a lot of the big commercial fashion houses like Country Road and uh, Sports Craft, Sports Girl, all those sort of big companies were were housed in that little Cremorne. Uh, block there, and that strip was all, all was was um, was dotted with all of the different design um, specifiers and um, big shops for furniture and uh, bathrooms and all that sort of stuff. So it had for us, it had a real sort of um, a feel that we felt were going to be great companion businesses to us. Uh, and that was definitely the case. So that 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 restaurant flew absolutely flew um, for a number of years. It was great. The the food that I was doing there, I was just so happy with. Customers were happy with it too, I believe. Um, the chefs that I worked with there were, were just uh, terrific. Adam Silver worked with me in the kitchen there, and um, and uh, Nick Holloway from up at Nunu in um, in Queensland worked with me there. Well, so many great chefs worked with me there. Uh, I've still got two of the um, two of my best managers from there that are working for me at, at, um, um, at working for me at um, at uh, Lamaro's now, which is twenty two years later. Wow, that's pretty good testament. Um, yeah, it was such an exciting restaurant. What's a what's a dish that you remember from that time that you were really proud of, or that people just could, apart from the duck that people couldn't get enough of? Um, we used to do this beautiful dish with pearl meat. Pearl meat is um, a byproduct of the pearl uh, of the oyster that the pearls grow inside. So we used to get it from a company called Paspaley, which have a pearl company in in Broome in um, in in WA. Uh, and it was just the most luxurious meat you've ever seen in your life. Uh, we've, we had we had to slice it really finely. We wok fried it with um, with some chive buds, some ginger, and some shiitake mushrooms, and then a little bit of touch of, of soy um, and a caramelized a slight caramelization of um, of sugar around the outside of the wok to glaze the whole um, to glaze the whole thing up. And then it got served inside a uh, uh, it got served inside a mother of pearl shell. It was a really elegant. Um, Sort of big celebration, sort of a uh, sort of a, uh, a dish, and something that people really came for, came back for a, a lot, a lot. But there are a number of dishes that we had there. It was a, you know, it was a real golden period, sort of for me, as far as not not necessarily the, as far as my personal happiness was concern, concerned, but certainly as far as the kind of creative food that I was doing. It was amazing. It was, re- yeah, I remember that pearl meat dish. It was the first time I'd eaten 
pearl meat and it was yeah super exciting and it was just at that time it just felt like a very different restaurant that that um, as you say purpose-built site just on church street where baby is now just near the river in those days we were sort of were the first to be sort of starting to um name all of the suppliers that were used give the suppliers a profile so we had a we had a um a little list at the end of the uh a little at the glossary at the end of the menu that that so told you where we bought our chicken where we put our duck where we bought all those sort of things. So we were sort of really red hot on trying to promote. That was something that um, came from Stephanie's. Um, that was really sort of starting to, to promote that. Uh, and then the young chefs as well there. That's when that's when there was a real um, – when it was cool to be a chef, I guess, in those days. And uh, I won Chef of the Year in, in 2005 there, which was really uh, just an incredible – I felt like an really credible um, achievement, and I'd worked so hard for it for such a long time, and and I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, <laughs> at the time, I celebrated pretty hard. I got to say, um, the boys that I was working and girls that I was working with there were just fantastic, and we we were we, we that team that core team stayed together for three or four years, and and. They were the, the guys that were in the kitchen, Nick Holloway, Adam Silver, those guys that were in the kitchen, they were doing as much of the um, as much of the uh, menu design as I was at the time. You know, it was fantastic collaboration, really great fun. And, um, uh, and those guys were just really special. It was a really special time. It sounds, yeah, it just sounds pretty thrilling and sort of heady. Um, but, yeah, you, you alluded to the fact that things behind the scenes perhaps weren't as rosy. Like how do you sort of balance that really fast-paced success and creativity with, um, yeah, just staying on an even keel? Um, uh, well, I, I, I still don't know the answer to that. I'll tell you when I'll work it out. Uh, no, it's still – look, it's a very um, – it is an all-encompassing career being a cook. There's no doubt about it. But so are a lot of careers, you know. There's, um, uh, I think that you, I think that one of the one of the things about it is that you, um, like being a being a nurse or being a doctor or uh, being an ambo, um, is is hell of a lot worse, hell of a lot more difficult, hell of a lot more challenging. But I think with the restaurant, um, in the restaurant environment, one of the things that that, that um, is special about that is that you've got a whole whole dining room full of people who've been drinking for three or four hours. Um, uh, alcohol's at the centre of the of the business, and it can become a bit of a trap that you end up having a few drinks every day, um, and that doesn't help your stress levels. You know, it, it actually makes you a lot worse. So, so I guess that's that's part of it. And then with the with at that time, that was also the beginning of open kitchens. The first, the, for the first, um, let me work it out. I don't know, for the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I was working in closed kitchens, you know. You were in the back of the back of the building underneath the stairs or something something like that, you know. And then by the time we got to um, to Pearl, we had an open kitchen there or semi-open kitchen there. And then moving forward, it was became all open kitchens. So there was the, the – the, you were you were you were well aware of of what people were doing out in the dining room. The, the dining room was coming into the kitchen saying hello to you. People forever at, at at Pearl. We had to build part of the kitchen at Pearl for people to come in and say hello. You know, like chef's table sort of thing. But it was a, a little zone where people could come and stand up and talk to you in the kitchen because just people wanted to do it all the time. You know, the fascination for cooking and the fascination for restaurants and all that sort of stuff was really be- reached its zenith there. Just before, um, just before TV cooking came came to uh, uh, came on, or not necessarily TV cooking came on, but all the game shows came on at that point in time. You know, yeah, so interesting to yeah think about all those different strands and the impact that that scrutiny has on you as a as a cook and as a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was very social, you know. That's the that's the thing. You got to learn not to um to burn the candles at both ends. Um, uh, you know, I still do that a little bit every now and again. But um, uh, but my body's built for it now. Uh, so, uh, but uh, you know, I'd certainly be um I I would certainly be advising any young people to uh, uh, you know, to steer clear of the bar. Do as I say. <laughs> Pretty hard when you run a pub. Yeah, interesting one, Jeff. So let's um, we could obviously we could talk for hours, but let's just um, touch on dandelion. Okay, so um, in when we finished, we sold. By the time we got to the end of Pearl, Pearl 
was then um, a multi-headed beast. We owned uh, a little a cafe called Pearl Cafe just down the uh, the road in Church Street in Richmond, and we also owned a, um, a catering company. We used to do all the catering for um, Gold Class Cinemas there, plus we used to do a lot of the preparation for the food for the cafe out of the catering company. Chris Lucas bought that business uh, from us uh, in about 2010 or 2011, um, and he could see something in that in that in that structure of having an off-site kitchen that we couldn't see. I'm too dumb to to, to um, be able to <laughs> be able to work out some of those sort of things. So so what he what he so he took over the business, turned Pearl into baby, turned um, Pearl Cafe into Kong, uh, and then utilised the 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 commercial kitchen. To then for his big plan, which was to, which is a super smart thing to do, which was to um, set up Chin Chin and do the do a lot of the food production out of that. So he certainly saw something in that that I, that I couldn't see. Plus, I I really wasn't interested in in doing businesses at that um, uh, uh, you know with that kind of infrastructure and that kind of thing. I was you know I was coming from a chef's perspective where I liked to touch everything that came into the kitchen and and serve it all and you know played it all myself and do all those sort of stupid things that we do. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you, you could probably give yourself a bit more credit because, yeah, okay, he, he saw how he could scale it a little bit, but you were actually already doing it. So, yeah. We were already doing it. Yeah. yeah. We were already doing it. Yeah. So, so I took, at that time after we'd sold, I took uh, a little bit of time off and got married to my second ex-wife. Um, her name is Jane and we went, one of the holidays, we'd, we'd been on a couple of holidays to Vietnam before, uh, before we got married. And um, we loved it. We absolutely loved it. I've, I've been now to Vietnam ten times. Uh, it's the most fantastic um, place to eat, most fantastic travel, most fantastic place to take your kids. It was just I just loved it so much. And after the Pearl thing had sort of finished, there are a lot of restaurants that were going to that really indulgent sort of um, style of thing that I hate, where you where a customer goes into a restaurant. They're not shown a menu. They're just asked what their dietary requirements are and then uh, the chef cooks whatever they want for them. I hate that stuff, you know. I, I just I like a much more engaged, you know, customer-chef sort of um, uh, situation and uh, don't like not knowing what I'm going to eat and don't, not, don't like not having choice and, you know, just expecting to sit there and eat 14 courses of, of things, you know. So uh, I didn't want to do any of that. And I was a bit disillusioned, I guess, with what um, with what all these top chefs were doing and what it meant to be a three-hat restaurant. Um, you know, three-hat restaurant meant you had to eat ants and things like that. You know, it just had to be, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's in the rule book, but yeah. <laughs> no, I know, but there's a couple of restaurants out there that are feeding you ants. Now, you shouldn't eat ants. You know, I get it that maybe one day eating ants and the protein that's available in them might be really good, but um, uh, at least as a chef, do something with the ant. You know, don't just put ants on the plate and ask people to eat them, you know? That's, um, <laughs> okay, fine. I don't know who feels. I mean, I think in, um, they do eat a lot of insects in Vietnam. I know. I absolutely know that, but they cook them really nicely. I've eaten them. I've eaten tarantulas. I've eaten a whole lot of them. But they treat them. They cook them and they treat them. But they also eat them because there's nothing else to eat traditionally, yeah? Well, definitely, they're definitely a great source of protein. I just, it's just not for me, you know? And I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, fair I'm, enough. I pay for everything in it myself and I'm not going to serve my customers ants. <laughs> Respect. Okay. So you opened your ant free restaurant dandelion in Elwood. Yeah, you opened an ant. So we opened a we opened a Vietnamese uh restaurant down there. I love Vietnamese food and I thought that it was ripe to be treated instead of being um the cheapest cuisine we could buy, which in a lot of ways at that time it was, Victoria Street, which was the home of um, Vietnamese food, was the cheapest place you would go. And as a student or as a young person, that's where you would that's where you would go uh, and uh, eat. I thought in my travels in Vietnam that there was a lot more to the food than just a $7 bowl of fur or a $3 banh mi, you know. So... Um, I tried to do a lot of lot of Vietnamese regional food and to use a lot of the a lot of the sort of haute cuisine, if you for want of a better term, that that emanated out of Hue in central Vietnam, 
Um, so, and I just, it was just, I lo- absolutely loved it. I loved it. Um, loved the food and I um, uh, loved sharing with people. People people really appreciated it, really appreciated being able to go to a, to a Vietnamese restaurant that was, um, that they could go to a date on or that they could take their parents to or they could, you know, that wasn't in a, in an environment like, at that time, like Victoria Street was, which was pretty marginal, sort of um, uh, sort of an area. You wouldn't want to walk around there too much around the back alleyways, and uh, and then the restaurants themselves weren't weren't managed um, and run in a in uh, in the same way that I had become used to. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. Still be able to operate a beautiful, clean restaurant that was safe to go to. That was, uh, uh, and the food was really good. And, and I also wanted something. Again, going back to what we did at Stella with all of the the wines by the glass and the matching of the food and the wine. There, I really wanted to have an environment where you could where you could drink wine with Asian food. And at that time. Vietnamese food to me was the most appropriate cuisine to drink beautiful wine with. Vietnamese food, you could have the full gamut of wines. You could have tannic um, uh, red wines. You could have really oaky white wines. You could have fragrant white wines. You could have the whole box and dice with it. So um, my wife uh, at the time was in um, worked in the wine industry, so she was very excited by that as well. So it was, it was a really terrific um uh, it just went. It just again. It just exploded. One chef, one restaurant, uh, one best new restaurant down there as well. Three times. That's the third time. So it was. Um, uh, it was. It was a very, 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 very um, rewarding time. I worked with the mainly Vietnamese team there, so I learnt a lot about Vietnam. I worked with a lot of um, uh, kids who are students here who weren't necessarily. Um, qualified chefs or, or chefs at all, uh, but knew a lot more about Vietnamese food than I did and not more about Vietnamese food. And they knew the flavours and they knew the traditions of the food and they knew why you ate this particular dish with this particular dish. And, um, yeah, it was a terrific experience, terrific. Mm. And, and a lot of people came through your kitchen that I'm just thinking of uh, Ennis, um for example, who worked with you and then opened his own restaurant. I've forgotten his last name and I've also – what's the name of his restaurant? It's called um, Hanoi Me in Port Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. And just such a lovely person and great, great little restaurant. So I think, yeah, a lot of talent went through that kitchen. Who, who, who else Who else do we know that went through there, Jeff? Uh, a guy called Tam Doe or somebody we call Tim Tam who's just opened a restaurant up in um, Maruchidor now. But he had a number – he ran a number of places. He, he was very prolific in his, his setting up of contemporary Vietnamese restaurants down. He contributed a hell of a lot to the advancement of um, – uh, he, he and his family had three restaurants in, in uh, Chapel Street. Uh, uh, New Wind and uh, Kin and something else. Oh, the old Saigon Rose. So they – Operating three restaurants, Vietnamese restaurants there at that time. So they were there, they were very thankful too to have an environment where they could be their best as well, um, where they could be where their cuisine was respected and um, um, and they were challenged to make it better all the time. And uh, they were constantly, I was constantly picking their brains. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And we would have so many special dinners down there. You can't believe it. I can't believe it when I look back at the menus and stuff, how many times we'd put on a special, a special, you know, Buddha's birthday menu or a menu for the Lunar New Year or oh, they were just we're coming up with things all the time because that's what their food was like, you know, Vietnamese food and a lot of Asian food in general. You know, there are dishes that you would only eat once a year. You know, we have that maybe with turkey at Christmas time, uh, hot cross buns, but there's not much else really. So that, there, there's just so many things. Oh, we have this on this particular day of the year, I mean, well, you know. So well, let, let's talk about it. Let's try and do it. I mean, there's so many things. Uh, there were so many things. It was just fantastic at that time. Um, and so, Jeff, you closed the restaurant during the pandemic. Was was it related to that? We've been. We'd also at that time, my wife and I moved to Bali. So we were living in Bali there and we adopted a little boy in Bali. So we, um, uh, so uh, it was becoming more and more difficult to operate the business at that time. Then we moved back to Australia with our son uh, and then my, uh, then my wife and I broke up, tragically broke up. And uh, so once we, we sold the restaurant uh, last year uh, as the divorce was coming through, so it was, a, uh, it was uh, just a victim of, um, 
a victim of um, the heartbreak of um, divorce, really. You know, it needed to happen. We needed to separate. We, we had separated. We had divorced. We needed to do, have a settlement, family settlement. So, so it was very, very sad. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's, um, yeah, there's always so much going on in, in people's lives beyond, beyond their businesses, hey? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But we had we we did we did we set up two restaurants in in Bali, both of them Vietnamese, the same as the same DNA as what Dandelion was. Uh, so we were able to continue that sort of thing on over there and advance the advance. It's a little bit more difficult to do over there because the the the, the access to um, I mean Melbourne is such a has such a um, history with Vietnamese people and with Vietnamese food and all that sort of stuff. It was very easy. It was just like low low hanging fruit for me when we first started down there in um, uh, in Elwood. But it was much more difficult in Bali because we couldn't get the produce and we couldn't get um, we had Ennis had people we had people down at Dandelion. This is with, with beautiful Ennis. Ennis had these airline hostesses that he knew from um, that he knew from Hanoi or no from from Ho Chi Minh that were um, bringing in this special rice paper for us. And so twice a week we get delivery of rice paper that the that he just got these these air hostesses, the Vietnamese air hostesses, to bring in. It was just fascinating sort of stuff, you know, absolutely fascinating. Special sugar that we used to get, this yellow sugar that we used to get from. Uh, from Hoi An and, um, oh, you know, just – and they would just bring in, just like you and I would bring food home from food back, not – not well, food with illegal stuff, stuff that was legal, food to, food that we would bring back, you know. It just um, – it was, it was just great. Very good. Love it. Well, Jeff, we're about to break a world record for the longest podcast I've ever done. But um, I'm so another ten years. <laughs> we'll wrap it up. But, um, yeah, just as we wrap it up, just give us some – I don't know, like a lot of people are doing it really tough at the moment. Uh, what's What sort of mindset can you share with people to, you know, move forward with positivity into the rest of 2022? Don't look at the government to solve any problems for you. That's for sure. So um, stop watching the TV at eleven o'clock every day to see what um, to see what the, the the politicians have got to say. Just stay close to your customers, work with your customers, and do you do do what you believe is uh, uh, is right with great passion and um, uh, and um, hopefully high energy. You know, I think that it's very very important to uh, you got to keep remembering that you got to you know. Um, you can't empty the well all the time. You've got to keep topping up the well, you know. So for me, topping up the well is usually travelling and um, uh, and what have you. And I know it's hard to travel now, but um, uh, I snuck over to New York for uh, for two weeks of Christmas and, and New Year, um, and that was really just to just because I couldn't stand uh, uh, you know the bickering between our politicians and the petty sort of stuff that was going on. When we can't really do anything about this pandemic until it's over, we just got to wait. Wait it out, you know. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's a nugget of information for anybody, but um, uh, yeah, I think it's the, the politicians aren't going to be aren't going to save us. Um, Jeff, it's been an, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I feel like we need to do it again so that we can <laughs> cover some more stuff. But um, so uh, so wonderful to have you, yeah, step us through some of your extraordinary career and, and get your perspective on the industry. Thank you so much for chatting to us today on Dirty Linen. My pleasure. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.